0: Welcome back to the Poptimist. Today we have Jay Dorena. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem.
1: Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate you bringing me on.
0: Of course, man. I love you on TikTok. You are funny as fuck.
1: Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, TikTok's been a really good platform for me because it's really quick, easy, fast jokes you can crank out of there. Uh, it makes it fun to riff. Uh, and you can just kind of make jokes about whatever. The content provides you with it your own things to react to. And it's kind of this endless cycle of, of things you can make out of it. I think TikTok
0: is different than any other social media platform. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like
1: it really does show humanity at its best and at its worst. It's the the thing about TikTok with like the community that it's cultivated on there is a honesty. Like where you have Instagram is completely fake and you have uh, Facebook that's almost like insane. It's like this curated weird perspective of like bubble reality where people want to like be extremely honest about who they are on TikTok, whether it's like my car is broken down, my relationship's falling apart, whatever it is, or maybe it's something good. Maybe it's something bad. People prefer to have a, an honest representation of reality. Absolutely, I think
0: the other thing that's interesting too, and I've just started seeing this with social media. Being a creative person, um, someone who wants to put out content, you know, you're a stand-up comedian. I'm a musician. Yeah, I really think that these social media platforms, it's almost like they're mediums to express our art through. Because yes. I discovered you through TikTok. I I just thought it was hilarious. It was funny and. The sense that I got from it was like, I want to do some research here because there seems like there's something a little bit deeper with this guy. Yeah. Cause your comedy versus TikTok, like your TikTok is very silly. You know what I yeah. mean? It's very absurdist, but your comedy is really thought-provoking. You yeah. have themes and things that you're working on. So I've I've been thinking about that more just with like social media.
1: Yeah. Well, the the Expression uh, between the two platforms is very different. Like TikTok, the way I kind of approach it is I do really enjoy absurd humor and expressing it through TikTok's a lot easier. But, and, and because you have those visual representations that you can kind of bring in, you can do green screens, you can do this whole sort of performance through it. With, um, with standup, it's just your voice and just the people in that moment. Uh, so you have to dig a little bit deeper to get the image that you're trying to portray through your mind into everyone else's and to get them on the same level of your sense of humor so you the way you um, translate things is different and also I've been doing stand-up way longer than I've been doing any sort of social stuff I've been doing stand-up for about eight years now and I've been on TikTok for um, maybe like six months or so uh, like seriously putting stuff out Um, and so the my skills as a comedian are much more refined sure yeah yeah it's it's two
0: almost polar opposite. Ways to express yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, How, so oh, sorry, talk what? to
0: No, sorry. Yeah, this, this whole <laughs> Zoom thing, dude, I'm still getting used to it. I'm so used yeah. to doing shit in person. Yeah, so I'm having to completely modify what I'm doing. But yeah. um, when did you start stand-up or what inspired you to start
1: stand-up? So I started stand-up when I think I was 21. Uh, yeah, I think I was 21, 20 or 21 when I started stand-up. Um, I like It's a... Hopping of process. Like the first time I ever performed in front of a crowd in like a comedic way, I was in grade four. I I did like public speaking and I did a a speech about my family and I remember making it funny. Uh, And that was the only time I ever did anything like that. And I didn't do anything like that again until I was in high school. I did public speaking again. And I remembered when I was younger, like, oh, I did a funny speech. I should do them funny again. And I was very good at doing it funny. And I was able to like go to whatever, like the provincial level of public speaking in high school. And then I just left it. I never touched it again. Uh, I used to consume a lot of stand up uh, as a kid and as a teenager and stuff. Uh, but it wasn't until I was, yeah, my early twenties, my brother started doing stand up and I, I, it blew me away. Cause I didn't know you could just go do it. I didn't know you could just be like someone who goes to a show and, and performs. I thought you had to be famous. And he was like, Oh, I'm just doing open mics. So I wrote material. The first material I wrote, I had the intention of giving it to him. Cause I was like, oh, maybe I'll just write jokes and I can hand them over to my brother. But I wrote enough material for me to do it myself. And then I just went and did it. And the first set went good enough. And I just kind of stayed at it and kept doing it. What was that speech that you gave in the fourth grade? What did you say about your family? I can't. I can't remember any specifics about it. To be honest, I remember it was just like breaking down each one of my family members. My sister's a of uh, daddy's girl. My mom is like a, a mean boss. My dad farts a lot, like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like breaking down each one of my family members, and I don't even remember. How I came up with the jokes for it. I just did it. I just did it. And it just kind of came to me naturally. Who were the stand ups that inspired
0: you to, to start doing stand up?
1: Uh, Chappelle was huge when I was. Oh, a, yeah. Like, I mean, he's genius. Genius. Absolutely genius. I mean, he's huge now, but like I was in. Elementary school, I think, when Chappelle show was on, or at least maybe the first season, and like Chappelle show coming up was like a cultural, like a massive thing in our culture, like in the in the way that you have things that ripple through society that become like how you have Drake started from the bottom, now we're here. Like people just say that now without any relation to the to Drake. Like I'm Rick James, bitch, was something every single you said that everyone knew what you meant. So that. Watching Chappelle do a sketch show and then do stand-up made me understand different realms of comedy. Made me understand, like... There's a vast difference between having a TV show and going up and telling jokes in front of a crowd. So that was a very early exposure. And when I was, I would sit down and watch hours and hours of stand up. I watched a lot of Chris Rock because Chris Rock had a banger special after banger special back then. Um, who else would I watch a ton of? I got introduced like late to the game on uh, people like Doug Stanhope and stuff. That was like right after I started doing stand up. But I'm trying to think if there was like, other stand ups who were bubbling around that time, but I think Chappelle and Chris Rock were like the two that I would watch a lot of as a kid.
0: Did the first time you do stand up was that in Toronto? No, or it was actually
1: in uh, in Mexico. I in was Mexico, yeah, yeah. I so I was I grew up in BC and then through university, I got a scuba diving instructor certificate. I moved to Mexico. Now found out my brother was doing stand up. I googled just like stand up comedy in in Plato Carmen that's the city I was in. Found this show and I just went and did it. And then I just started doing stand up there. Like I there was like these five guys who were doing shows for tourists once a week and I came and I was like, "Hey, can I do a set? I've never done it before." And they were like, "Yeah, for sure. Come and do it." And I did it and I brought a bunch of people out and it was super fun and I just kind of stayed at it.
0: Okay. You just broke off a lot for me to unravel there. Okay. (laughs) So you went to, you grew up in British Columbia. Yes. And then you went to university and you, you said you got like a scuba certification.
1: Yeah. So I, uh, I went to like, I basically, my parents, I graduated high school and never liked school. It was never very an academic, strong academic kid. Uh, and my parents were like, you have to go straight to university. And I was so happy to be done with school. And so I was like, I was, I was happy to be done with school until my parents said that. And so I looked for whatever was like the most bullshit course I could find. And it was a scuba dive instructor course that you could do on the coast of BC. So I moved to the coast of BC to do this course. It was only two semesters, got my certificate. And then from there, moved back home for a bit. Uh, I think I was only home for a month. And I was like, I had the taste of freedom of like leaving home. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I need, to, I need to get out of here immediately. So I just started sending out applications. I, I applied to every single scuba place I could apply to. And I had a good resume because from doing the course, they like really make you take a lot of scuba courses um, through this university program and ended up in Mexico. They had a a job set up for me when I went. It was a super cheap flight, and I was like, boom, gone. Went down there, lived out there for like three years or so. I did stand-up like the last year I was there. And I really, like, from doing stand-up, I was like, I love this. It was the first thing I ever kind of decided to do on my own. Like, as as your kid, your parents put you in sports, or they put you in this, or people kind of push you in certain directions. Stand-up was the first thing where I was like, I'm going to try this and then I like it and I'm going to keep pursuing it. And it was the first thing I ever worked hard at too. I had never, ever pushed myself at anything. Uh, and I was like, okay, well this is like inspiring me to, 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 be a driven person if I want to do this I need to take it seriously there's a we're just one group of dudes doing stand-up out here this isn't like a real scene of comedy I need to move somewhere where it's serious and I knew that Toronto had the biggest and best scene in Canada and so then I moved over to Toronto well Toronto
0: I've never been but I always hear it compared to New York City it's like a melting pot kind of place there's a yep. bunch of people from all over the world there so you move there and you start doing stand-up what is your life like? Are you just poor,
1: destitute, wor- delivering pizza, shit like that? So when I, so basically what happened was I wanted to move. I figured I wanted to move. I got uh, my visa to work in Mexico had exp- expired and I kind of had been like working illegally for a bit. And I got given uh, like a notice. They're like, you have to leave the country in 20 days or you're going to get deported. Uh, and I was like, okay, I got to go. Um, so I sold all my dive gear sold everything. And I got like no money for it because it was kind of beat up. Uh, but I got enough money for a flight flew down. By the time I got to downtown Toronto, I had like 25 bucks left and I had nowhere to go. And I had no plan. My plan was literally, it was, I was like it's summertime, I'll sleep on the streets. I'll just figure it out. Um, I, I just stopped at a Starbucks and I Googled Toronto homeless shelters. That's straight up what I did. And I found a youth shelter that I went to, it was such a weird course of events because I got off the plane, I got downtown, I went to a hostel first to see if I could stay there, and then I ran into two comedians that I knew because uh, a guy who was doing stand up with in Mexico was from Toronto and he had introduced me, though like not introduced me, but shown me. He's like, these are some of the funniest people in Toronto, and I ran into them because there was a show at the hostel. And I was like, oh, I know you guys, you're comics. I just moved here to be a comedian. It was such a weird thing. It was so weird. I leave the hostel. I go to a Starbucks. I Google Toronto homeless shelters. I find this youth shelter I go to. I get there. They go, hey, sorry, our beds are full. As I'm leaving, a kid shows up and he's drunk. And they have like a zero tolerance policy on any sort of substance use with anyone who's staying there. So he, well, they're like, hey, sorry, man, you can't stay here tonight. And then they come to me. They're like, a bed just opened up if you want to sleep here. And I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So then I stayed there. Uh, and honestly, man, like it, 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 technically I was homeless. Thank God I never had to st- spend a night like actually sleeping on the streets. But staying in that youth shelter was super nice. It like In terms of like a free place to live, they you got fed, you got a place to sleep. And I never felt like upset about it. Like I was moved to Toronto. I was chasing a dream and I had a place to stay until I could get a job and get money and get my own place. And the entire time I was there, I told them I was like, I just moved here for stand-up. They were like, Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh you can go out, you can stay like this much later after curfew and come back. And they let me do stand-up while I was in the youth shelter. And I was like 22 at the time or something like that. Um, and and it was I felt so fortunate. I know it was weird. I was homeless in Toronto, but I felt so fortunate uh, that I, that it was starting to come together, that I had a decision. I went to go chase this dream and I didn't tell any of my family. Oh, sorry. I just bumped my mic. No, you're Uh, good. I didn't tell any of my family what was going on. Everyone was back in BC and I chose to specifically do this because I knew that if I had made the decision to go home to BC, I knew that Vancouver had a pretty good scene Uh, from what I heard. It wasn't as good as Toronto's, but I knew that if I went home to stay with like my dad, I would have been lazy. I knew I would have stayed on the couch. It would have taken my time to get a job. It would take me forever to get to Toronto. So it's like, fuck it, bite the bullet, go, go. Like just, and you'll figure it out. And I did. And I just figured it out. And I went from like being homeless in the shelter to being in like, sort of like a intermediate housing thing to getting my own place. That was in this rundown house with a bunch of comedians. Uh, It was like this famous comic house that for like 15 years, different comics had lived in. And it was 400 bucks a month to live in downtown Toronto. But the place was a completely like destitute house. Uh, And then just like working it up and within like three years of, being in Toronto, I did just for laughs and, uh, and things have just kind of kept moving in a positive direction.
0: But it all started with you taking that very big risk on yourself and saying, I'm going to set out to try and do this. I don't know if it's going to work or not, but I don't really care. I just want to do this.
1: Yeah. And the thing was, I was though that last chunk in Mexico, I wasn't teaching scuba diving anymore. I worked for a call center for a bit. And then that kind of, fell through the call center, couldn't get people's visas done properly. So I was like kind of broke in Mexico for the last little while. And that's why I had to sell my dive gear to get a plane ticket. And I was scraping by in Mexico where there's no, like where I was, there was no social services for me. And I knew it was like, I'm not going to die in Canada. It's Canada. They, 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 they'll figure it out. They'll help me. It's yeah. it's Canada. So I was like, I know that if I go some, I'll be able to figure it out somehow. And I, it's So it's weird how that course of event, uh, events happened, how I ended up where I did. And it was like perfect timing with everything, but it did play out to my benefit.
0: Oh, yeah. And so I'm 29 now and mm-hmm. I am approaching 30. So I'm, I'm starting to think for myself, I, I did a bunch of crazy, crazy shit throughout my 20s to try and have a just pursue what I want to pursue in my life to have the freedom to not have a job and do whatever I want to do. Yeah. And now it's like, I'm starting to get to a point to where when you're that age, when you're 21, 22, you don't really have perspective on anything because it's so brand new. So even when something is going well, you don't necessarily know, like when you were in that youth hostel were you thinking this is perfect this is exactly what I want or was there a part of you that was panicking a little
1: bit I felt secure because I knew I had a bed there I knew like just don't screw up don't go out and drink and get messed up and you'll keep this bed here and it was like I and also I knew what the alternative was because when I was staying when I came in first and they're like sorry we don't have a bed they gave me some food and they were like but you can go to a men's shelter if you want and I knew men's sh- like I had uh, my uncle works in like social services. So I had seen what men's shelters are like, and they're grim, they're grim, they're a rough environment. So I was like, Oh man, I mean, I'll do what it takes if that's what it means. But so I knew that I was at least more fortunate than that. I knew that this situation that I've had, that the, the youth, uh, youth shelter was a much nicer, cleaner, safer environment. Is the youth shelter, is that run by, the Canadian
0: government or how does that work? Cause it's a little bit different than America as it is you can di- see.
1: Yeah, it is different than America. I, I'm not exactly sure how it runs. It's a place called covenant house. There, there's a bunch of them throughout Canada. I think there's some in the States too. They're like, it might be its own private organization, but they just help homeless youth. Um, and I was a homeless youth at the time. Um, and it was, it was like, Nice enough where eventually I had my own room. Like there was, they had like things to help all the kids in there, like PlayStation on the weekends. You got fed three times a day. Like you were well taken care of in there to make sure that you could get up on your feet. They help you get a job. They help you work on your resume. They help you do all these things, like get access to like business clothes and all these kind of things. So you can start moving in the right direction. And this gave me enough time to like get a job and get up on my feet and get things in place. So I could uh, have things moving forward and not end up actually on the streets.
0: So are there any counselors that are in these situations, checking in on people, making sure they're not on drugs or they're on a good path or I'm just so curious about this. I've never heard something like this before.
1: Yeah. The place has full of uh, social workers uh, and there was like different tiers of social workers. You had someone who was kind of like your daily check-in person. And then you had someone who was sort of like reviewing your entire case and uh, and everyone was trying to help you like move on to something better and eventually get out of there. And I think you could only stay there for a certain period of time. um, But that did change depending on your situation because there was all different kinds of situations like I was someone who like traveled there had nowhere to go and just kind of fell into this place there were some people who like their parents are abusive or there's some people who had been on the streets for a long time mm-hmm. it was a super eye-opening experience because you realize that like some people don't have a chance right from the get-go oh like, yeah like you see if you see someone who's homeless and older there's a whole bunch of different perceptions that people come up with in their mind like they're lazy they're whatever they're a drug addict or blah 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 it's like some of these people are, are abused from the time they're 10 12 years old and then they run away from home that they, they come out of the womb to yeah yeah and they have nowhere to go nowhere to go and that's been their life forever and it's all they know. So getting to see that, it, it was good and bad because it's hard to see people who are going through those situations. But it was also great to see the kind of support that's there to try and help them not stay in that bad situation.
0: Well, it's interesting you, you say that because really everybody starts off at a different point in life, yeah. just based on what whatever it is that you were born into. And I look back on my life, and I see that I wasn't necessarily born into the best circumstances um, compared to other Americans. But it's also you look and you can see I was like, well, no one really abused me or beat me as a kid. It was just like basically dealing with with drug addict parents. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that whole thing. Yeah. And you just look around and you see with age, I learned empathy because I didn't have any empathy when I was young. I was completely vacant of it because the only thing that I knew in my experience was my my own pain that I was yeah. carrying with me and my own trauma. And I didn't know how to see outside of that. And It wasn't until I started digging into that, that I could really view other people on a deeper emotional spectrum than just like, like you were saying, oh, they're a, they're a drug addict. It's like, well, yeah, that homeless guy on the corner, he might be 62 and a drug addict, but maybe he was in Vietnam. You know what I mean?
1: And maybe his dad hit him every day when he was a kid. Yeah, you have no idea what kind of situation these people have been brought through from the beginning. That's why there's like that. The when you start to break down like the left right perception of sort of uh, the political spectrum, you have sort of uh, a more if you're leaning more right, it's the idea that like each person is sort of responsible for themselves and if you're leaning more left it's like the government has a responsibility to support people and i don't the neither one is completely correct there's a somewhere in the middle where things have to come together but it, like if you're leaning far to the right and you're like everyone has a responsibility to take care of themselves and do and do whatever it takes to not be poor not be in a bad situation it's like but if you were in their shoes and you were treated the way some of these people were treated by their parents and friends and society and, and were introduced to drugs and violence and who knows what kind of abuse from their entire life. It's not just like shake it off and get a job. No, it's stuff that weighs on you your entire life. You have to unravel it in order to be able to shake it off and get a job, get a job, Ex- exactly. you have to acknowledge that you were in that situation. And that's where things like the social services come into place to make sure that these people don't end while they have to go through that unraveling process. There's something that can help them not be homeless and sick and and drug addicts through that process of of becoming a healthier person. In America, we don't give a fuck about our homeless. No, no. I know that things get rough over there.
0: And it's honestly a huge problem here because it's like, I don't know if you've seen anything just about LA, like uh, since COVID has happened, there's entire city blocks just for blocks and blocks and blocks. that's all tense. And you can't really fault these people. They need, they need like mental and emotional help. Like mm-hmm. uh, my ideal world, I think when I, if I had a magic wand to resolve all this, it's like you sit these people down with a therapist for an hour a day and figure out what is going on. How can we help them?
1: Yeah. And there's that is like a long process to get through that. And part of that stress that ends up that gets people in these situations, they found is like a huge part of it is a financial stress, too. And it's like the capitalist system that kind of pushes people under this wheel where it's like, in order to get a decent job or to get into a decent situation, sometimes you need to get a certain level of education, which is hard to afford. And even if you can't afford it, it's going to put you in debt and you're constantly under this financial pressure when the system, not the, some people are born into a better situation than others. And then you're starting at a disadvantage depending on where you are. The, like the divide in most countries, I, most places in the world, it, we like to think it comes down to like race, gender, and a lot of these things. A lot of it is just income. It is just a financial divide that is that is we put all these other isms on over top of to distract from the fact that it's like if people have more money, they're in a better situation, they don't have to do some of the things that they're doing in order just to survive. One hundred percent. And I got an example for you. So
0: things were so freaking heated in America, at least last year with the whole election, all that shit. Yes. And it seemed to cool after Joe Biden took over. But I think the true moment of unity and healing for America to taking those first steps was the whole GameStop Robin Hood thing that happened.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because
0: the mask dropped for one minute and it's like, oh, shit. All of us are broke and all of them have the money and they're the one who, who decide what the rules are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, they, it's always been like the, the story that it's always been told. It's like, you just have to work hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and then you can make it to the top and you can be rich just like me, blah, 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 whatever they're, they're trying to sell you. And then when people had the opportunity to do it, Robin hood was like, absolutely not. (laughs) No, 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 no. They were like, the rich have to win. The the game is rigged for us to keep winning over and over and over again. And that was was when the mass dropped when people were like, oh, no, it's not fair. It's not fair. Even if we play the game you told us to play, you're still going to make us lose. You can rig it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was like, it was unfortunate and frustrating. But I think people are getting savvier to this, I hope. Oh,
0: yeah. I saw people that were normally like arguing with each other on Facebook of opposite political spectrums. They were unified. Yeah. They were saying, fuck Wall Street,
1: fuck the bankers, because that is that's the true divide. The true divide is is this rich, poor divide. That's where it's like if when you look at like if we go back to the George Floyd situation, like what happened to George Floyd? Horrible, disgusting thing. But it was over a, a bounced check. Or was it, or it was a fake bill? Like something.
0: a counterfeit, I think like $50 bill well, or something bill, like that.
1: Something, it, it goes back to a financial situation where it's like people are forced to do things they wouldn't normally do regardless of their, their race or, or gender or anything like that because of this economic situation that they're forced into. And, and if you can start to mend that We can start to balance that through whatever it is, through better social services, through a universal basic income. The fact that one man was able to make $90 billion, $90 billion. And not pay any taxes. And not pay any taxes. And people are struggling to just get food on table, to have a job, just to survive during this pandemic. And there's like the vast unbalance. And that no one needs that. No one needs $90 billion. No one, like, you have $1 billion, you're set for life, never need to work again, can just live in affluence beyond your wildest dreams. But there's still this, like, people just raking in the wealth and then nothing to balance that out to the rest of society. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Mm-hmm. So, with
0: someone, you look at Jeff Bezos to a certain degree, I wonder how much money even actually matters to someone like him. And is he just chasing something? Is he constantly chasing the dragon of the illusion of whatever it is he's trying to to get out of life or succeed in this world? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, how much do you think it's money motivated just being born maybe like a sociopath or, or, or a psychopath?
1: Yeah. I, my, my theory has always been that he needs like the trillion dollars become the first trillionaire because that's the only way you can fix a lazy eye because because he's had a lazy eye this entire time. I've never noticed that before. <laughs> and I'm like, how is he not fixed that, man? Or baldness? <laughs> one of them costs a trillion dollars. I'm not sure which one.
0: <laughs> well, um, he's like Lex Luthor. You know what I mean?
1: He is very Lex Luthor vibes. I don't know what motivates him. Once you have that much money, I don't know if I would still be motivated to work in the same way if I never needed to work, or worry about any sort of income. Um, I I don't think that... The, the desire for progress is wrong. I think the way we're doing it is wrong. And it's clear because it's starting to have an effect on the planet. Like this endless need of growth and this endless need to like consume and create profit. We are now pushing the planet into, into like a death cycle where we need to reel things back because we're consuming too much, we're making too much garbage, we're making too much uh, CO2, that it's damaging the planet because we have endless, endless, endless consumption. So this mentality that we have isn't the right one. It, we I still see that progress is positive. We're still gonna keep moving forward, hopefully, that we don't all die in a mass extinction event, but it, hopefully that progress keeps happening. We keep moving forward but there needs to be some type of balance. I'm not against progress. I'm not against people getting money. I'm not against people being extremely successful, but it's right now it's at the expense of millions of, or if not billions of people.
0: Well, he's, he's making sure that his workers can't unionize. And they also have to like piss in bottles and and shit like that whenever they're, they're working. And if you miss
1: a day, you, they, they didn't give them any paid sick leave, I guess, during COVID. I don't know if you heard about that. Which is insane. It's insane. What's one of the wildest things is that the companies you work for never reflect on your income. Like if you work at a corner store, you make however much working as a cashier there. You make the same if you work at Walmart, but Walmart's a multi-billion dollar company. How does working for a more profitable company not reflect on your own income? It should be a badge of honor to work at these companies, but it's not because they can pay people to uh, horrible wages, even though their company makes an insane amount of profit. And sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask you, well, how can we resolve this? Because it's it's
0: like, I think there are positives to both capitalism and socialism
1: and negatives Mm -hmm. to both capitalism and socialism. I think it's what what we talked about before where there's there's some medium something in the middle where clearly you, you can't make 90 billion dollars not get taxed that's the that does Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Like if we're going to start anywhere it's like they these people have to pay a fair share of taxes. It it, it doesn't make sense that 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 there's been an extreme shift. If you look, there's, I can't remember exactly what the metrics are, but I, like during World War II, it was something like 94% of the taxes were coming from the top 3%. And now it's something like, I think it's like, uh, only 34%. It's shifted drastically where half or less of all the taxes coming to the country are coming from the top 3% who will hold the majority of the wealth. And that that doesn't make any sense. There needs to be something balancing this where these people can still live like gods, but you have to pay your fair share. And also, we need to look at how innovation is changing the job market where we To run a company like Facebook, like if you go back and you look look at like Henry Ford or something like that, like he employed way more people than a Facebook or an Instagram, which are now these, the sort of new era companies. But because innovation makes it, um, makes everything flow so much better. We can run these companies more efficiently and we need less people to do the jobs. So more money flows to the top. This needs to be accounted for. I have no problem with us taking away all the crap jobs. No one wants to work as a a grocery store, um, a cashier. So we have automatic checkout. No one wants to work at McDonald's. No one should have to do these crap jobs if we can get robots to do them. But then all those people who run these companies are now making even more money because they don't need to pay those people. Is it like a universal basic income? I don't know what it is, but something needs to be put in place to ensure that everyone can at least live. And the super rich, are still going to be super rich, but maybe everyone doesn't have to worry about whether or not they're going to eat. Well, the downside
0: is that unfortunately, at least in America, the super rich are the ones who are able to influence politics.
1: Yeah. Which is the greed, you know, I mean, it all comes down to that. Oh yeah. Yeah. It does all come down to greed. And I honestly, who knows what, uh, like it, that becomes a huge problem because as we talked about before with the Robin hood situation is that these people don't want to play fair at all. If you like, I think if if you try to go, I think down a just political legal route of like, we're going to put legislation in place. Maybe it works, maybe, but you have like, I don't know, they could just like assassinate the person who's trying to push this thing forward.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, it's happened all throughout, Political history. You look at RFK, JFK, Martin Luther King Jr. It's like we find someone who can inspire some hope and change, and then we fucking put a
1: gunshot to their head. And then head. they just kill them. They, yeah. Like the thing that pushed Martin Luther King over the edge was because he started to, uh, started to bring up how there was a wage dis- uh, um, disparity. Is that the right word? Uh, discrepancy. Uh, discrepancy. Sorry wage discrepancy between black and white workers and that they should be paid the same before that when he was just like we want to vote we want the same rights people were like yeah yeah, okay take it once you start to bring money into the situation they're like yeah it was like no no way, <laughs> absolutely not they're like absolutely not so it's like i don't know like i i don't know how you push back against something like that i don't it, it, and also this is like we're in deep conspiracy theory territory here with like oh yeah but but it's it seems like it, we know that they won't play fair and we know that even though they're sitting on piles of gold like massive dragons they don't want to give up even the smallest amount um so I don't know what that changes uh and it might just be moved to Europe that might be the answer <laughs> it's go somewhere where it's a little less. <laughs> uh toxic in terms of uh, uh the wealth gap have you listened to sergil simpson before
0: no who's that okay so he is like a nashville musician he's kind of like the the second coming of like waylon jennings and all those guys but in 2019 he released this great album called sound and fury and it was just a straight up rock and roll album it was incredible really good you should check it out if you you had the chance um but he has this one song um I can't remember what the name of the song is, but it was like the the first single from the album. And the one of the lyrics is, compromise is made out of peace, but history is made out of violence. Yeah. The... And it's the human story. You know what I mean? I, I don't know if we can ever really resolve any of these bigger human issues like racism. I just, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to get rid of it altogether because there's going to be people who still want to be racist or they still want to, you know what I mean? Does that make sense?
1: Oh yeah, no, it does make sense. I think I think a large part of things like these I feel like things that shouldn't be issues anymore. Things like abortion and racism. It's like how are we not past these like yeah. homophobia? Like when uh, the gay marriage talk came up in the states again because we've had gay marriage legal in Canada for ages, and I feel like over the last election run, it, there was talk about gay marriage and abortion laws again. I was like, I was like, I thought we were done with this. How is yeah. it? Why, why are we bringing this? This is old news. I think these things are brought up by political figures to have keep single uh, single issue voters coming back, and, and they yes. can keep people voting for them over keep things. Keep them scared keep them scared over things that don't really matter, man, that it's like, is, is abortion really that big of an issue that you're willing to sacrifice so many other things to make sure people can't get abortions? Like, what, what are we doing? What are we doing? Talk to me a little bit about Canada. Cause I don't really
0: know much about it. I grew up in Maine. So I grew up right down the road from, uh, where trailer park boys is. Yeah. Um, but What was it like to kind of grow up there? What was the society? What was the culture? Is is your family originally from there? Did they move from the States? How did all that happen?
1: So my dad's from Haiti. Uh, He grew up in Haiti until I think he was in his late 20s, early 30s. Then he moved to Montreal. He lived in Montreal for a while, got married, had a couple kids. They got divorced. He moved to BC. Met my mom, who had a daughter before uh, in her marriage, and then they met and had me. Uh, my mom is is anglophone Quebecois, um, so she's like from Quebec but English speaking. Uh, and I grew up in on in West Coast Canada. In terms of like like in comparison to America to Canada, race was never as pushed in my face. And that could have just been my dad. I remember mm-hmm. my dad sitting down and having conversations with me, like you you look a certain way, and I didn't even. It wasn't even until I was like in my early twenties that I realized what he was telling me, but he's like, you are a certain way. And if you have to work twice as hard for something, then that's your reality. And so you're going to have to work twice as hard, but he never said like, you're black. So things might be harder for you. Never. And he would never say anything like that. But when I got older, I realized that's what he was talking about, but race was never something that was like constantly talked about and constantly brought up in our home. And also I don't feel like it was something that was brought up a lot in my life, BC isn't a place that is, has, that has a large black community, but it is very multicultural. I remember my friend group, like one of my buddies was from Afghanistan. Another buddy was from uh, Korea. Another buddy was a white Canadian dude. Like my friend group would hit the spectrum of kids from all over the world. So that was probably a good experience too, growing up, like learning from all these people who are different from you and come from different backgrounds. And it just was that was just the norm. I never thought of it any other way. It wasn't. And that's what Canada is in a lot of its major cities. Uh, It wasn't like Canada has a huge immigration policy. So there's people from all different cultures. It wasn't until I moved to Mexico, where I lived in a place where everyone was uh, the same, where everyone, everyone in Mexico is Mexican. And that was that was, that was different for me. I'm like, oh, there isn't just people from all different backgrounds here. I had never really experienced that before. Like, I don't know what it would be like to be in the States and grow up in a white town where everyone's white or, where, or in a black town where everyone's black. I, where I lived, and people, there was people from all different races on my, just on my street alone. Interesting. Yeah, that, that definitely provides you with
0: a different outlook. And also, I think anybody who grows up in a situation like that,
1: they also learn empathy too. I think so, and I think it's just like a normalization and an understanding. And I don't think you pick up if you hear some stereotypes or some negativity about certain people. You don't listen to it. You uh, you have better memories of certain groups of people. I, I I I can't say what's different about it because it's all I know. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you
0: describe that pretty eloquently. The difference between America and Canada. So, um, cause yeah, I mean, in America, I was born down in Florida. So I grew up in South Florida with a lot of different kinds of people. And then I moved up to Maine, mm-hmm. which is all white people. It flip-flops back and forth with Vermont as the oldest and whitest state in the U S. So oh, yeah. every couple of years, once more people die off, uh, it, they'll just go back and forth. But So it was interesting, like spending my childhood down in Florida and then going up to Maine because I started to look around and everybody was all the same. You know what I mean? They were, they were living the same life. And basically like when you're in an all white place, there are two kinds of people. There are the white trash and then like the super, in my hometown, the super rich white liberal people that their parents teach at colleges, the, the, The fancy New England stereotype. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it was interesting going and seeing that because my hometown was not diverse at all. Like at all. Maine is not like a very fun place to be just because there's not a lot going on. I'm grateful to have grown up there because it gave me it was like a great existence growing up in this. This beautiful place is a beautiful place. But I just knew I wanted to do more. Yeah, there's like that small town mindset where why do you want to do that? Why do you think you can do that? And it's just like I just want to leave. I don't know what I want to do. I just
1: but don't it's want to be not, here. Yeah, it's not hang out here. i Yeah, uh, no, I definitely I grew up in the suburbs, and it's the suburbs is like my least favorite type of community. Oh it's yeah. Like, this weird, like if you're in the country, at least like people know each other and there's like this sense of community and everyone knows their neighbors and all this kind of stuff. If you're in the city, there's like a sense of anonymity, but you can do so much. There's like, you're not that connected with your neighbors, but you can go wherever you want. And there's subcultures for everything you could possibly imagine to do. The suburbs has like none of that. The suburbs. Everything is short buildings. Everything's gray roads. People get jazzed off of cutting their grass and buying a barbecue. People whisper about their neighbors and talk shit about each other. It's like this. I don't know. It's just it's it's like high school never died, and it's just as toxic. And and no one it feels like no one aspires to be anything more than having a regular job and paying off their mortgage. And for some people, that's great. I'm not knocking that lifestyle. Yeah, I just, no, I know what you mean it just was, it seemed frustrating to me. And I just specifically didn't like the way the community was set up. And it might've just been, uh, my mom who was like very, she had animosity to some, towards some of our neighbors and very openly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So maybe just my perception of, of the suburbs was like, people are mean to each other, but, uh, but I just don't, like that community that type of that type of community but it does aspire inspire you to go and chase something more to get out yeah they're like there has to be something more than this and just getting a job and meeting a girl and getting a home and then living your life i guess like are you a david lynch fan at all um he's a director he did twin peaks he did blue velvet I know of David Lynch but I I haven't watched Twin Peaks or anything like that. He did a, some movies recently, didn't he? Did he do uh, Mind Mindhunter or was that David Leach?
0: Ah, uh, that's David uh David Fincher. David Fincher, okay. Mind Mindhunter is a like great it. show too. I do like Mindhunter. But uh David Lynch, he um he really captures like the dark side Of the suburbs well like if you ever get a chance to watch twin peaks i mean it was groundbreaking when it came out Mm -hmm. because there was never really like a dark weird narrative like that on television before yeah but he really summarized i think what it's like the, the the strangeness to grow up in this community that tries to appear to be perfect
1: yeah yeah no that is that is a very good example of it Uh, it's, it, that's exactly what it is. It's people put a lot of people putting a face on. Um, and as a kid, it's just incredibly boring. So boring. It's like the, your highlight is like, you go to subway and everyone, like most kids like sit on a playground and get high and that's it. You're like, man, come on. And you watch TV and these fantastic things are happening. Cause like we're I'm 28, you're 29. You grow up like I got inundated with television my entire life. Oh yeah. What people are doing in these famous people in like a world. So exciting is out there and you go outside and it's just Costco. And you're like, oh, <laughs> you're like, that can't be the highlight of life. No,
0: no. It, it's a, a safe existence. You know what it I is. mean? Like, and I think that's what I was really super crazy in my, my fucking twenties. I lived in like five States in five years. Mm-hmm. And I think I, looking back on it now, I was trying so hard just to get the taste out of my mouth of sameness of safety. Yeah. I want danger to a certain degree, not stupid danger, but I want a little excitement, you know, like we've had some bad weather here recently and I kind of enjoy it
1: Yeah, because it feels
0: like I'm a little bit on the edge. I'm like, I'm going to go out right now. I'm going to go drive around and see what's going on. Yeah, it's, It's very stupid and very unsafe to a certain degree, but I, I don't know what it is probably childhood trauma in me where I'm like, I'm seeking this out.
1: Yeah. It's, I think it's just, it's more exciting than the, I don't know, Going having a nine to five and you go to work and you kind of do your job and you don't feel very fulfilled and we can't really talk to the people you work with and socialize because you got to get this work done that you don't want to do. And then you go home and you kind of hope for a raise and you pay off a mortgage. And it, it, it just the whole process seems just uneventful. And it's all building up to getting like a little bit of time off so you can enjoy yourself for a small fraction of the year. And then you go right back to it. And I'm happy to see that things are innovating and changing to another way. Like, the, like what we were talking about before, the talks of a universal basic income. Like my perception of uh, a utopia has always been we have robots like all these how robots we got self-driving cars coming on the horizon like like taxi drivers ubers truck drivers all those jobs are going to be gone and they should that's a brutal industry to work in. it's hard on your body it's hard on your mind you're driving for several hours a day take those jobs away and give those people a money just to live just a universal basic income that comes and pays people do everything that no one wants to do and then everyone can just focus on art and science. You just you can create whatever you want. You can research whatever you want. Like how they caught that uh, that East Area, the East, uh, the Eons. What was his name? Um, East Area Rapist, the 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 killer who was on the loose in California forever. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I know you're talking about the Night Stalker. The night. Oh, I think it was the Night Stalker. We might be mixing up two different guys. But there's a th- lot of them. There's a lot of them, but the way they caught him was like, it was uh, Patton Oswald's wife had a big, huge part in it. It was her like doing a bunch of research and a bunch of people compiling information together. And the, something the police could never do. They were able to use their minds and information they collected separately to track this guy down and find him and get him arrested. Like what could people be creating and doing if they didn't have to go to a mundane, boring job that nobody wants to do that we can replace with technology. They, there's so much more brilliant things that people could be doing with their minds. Well, let me play devil's advocate again, because I do
0: agree with you to a certain degree. Yeah. But the thing that it makes me, I, I think about myself and any times that I really had it easy. And I mean, you were talking about this a little bit too, where you just jumped and you went to Toronto versus going home and staying with your dad, what happens with people when they are just getting all their basic needs met or, can will the average human being go out and strive to do
1: more i i on I truly believe that the average person will because because uh, if we're talking about like look at our situation right now exactly what we we're talking about with the suburbs there's an option out there for us to get a nine to five that probably pays different but decent and we have benefits and we know that for the next 20 years we could be covered and we just have to show up that that's there, but we refuse that because it's not fulfilling to us, but there will be a percentage of society that smokes weed and eat Doritos and sits on the couch. But right now, well, first of all, it's not that bad. Your carbon footprint's super small. If you're doing that, you're not, <laughs> you're, not, you're not hurting anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how many of those people who are like that are just doing a mundane job. That's not really giving back to society in a big way. Now they're just going to be chilling. And there's nothing wrong with people chilling. Like, I don't think a universal basic income should be the point where you can live lavishly. But it's like, if you want to move outside of a city into like a small area where there's not that much going on and you can kind of scrape by and just make this and never have to work. If you want to do that, the option's there for you. But if you want to move to a city, you want to hustle, you want to do things, you're going to need to find other forms of income. But I think it is human nature to want to get more. But once we remove like financial stress from people, immediately things like hospital visits, drop down, mental health gets better. All these things start to improve because you don't have to worry about if you're going to die. Yes. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about if you're able to eat that day. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm talking about a thing that may never happen. Hopefully it does happen, but it, it, it just, it makes sense to me that there can be still people who are very successful and people who are pushing the envelope like Jeff Bezos in terms of what a company can do and how innovative things can be, but it doesn't have to come at the expense of people having to piss in bottles so they can just have a job. Yeah. Not get fired to be able to feed their families. Yeah. Like that is, that's disgusting. There was that. Did you see the, the John Oliver thing with the meat, meat pack, uh, packing plants? No, I haven't seen this. They he did a thing on I'm not sure how recent this was. I didn't see it that long ago, but about how the conditions that workers have to work under in the, these meat meatpacking plants, they all had to be super close to each other. There was no COVID regulations. Everyone was catching COVID and they had these they had something in their contracts where they couldn't like if people were getting sick or hurt on the job that they couldn't sue to get medical services. Um, So like one dude, they even said his hands got crushed and they made him sign this contract thing with a pen in his mouth so he could get medical services because the company's like, oh, no, no, we don't want to get sued. Like people are forced to work horribly. So someone is like living like a God. It's like just a little less. You just need to be living a little less so other people can live like human beings, man. Is it like that much? Is it that much? I'm not trying to be like no more, we're gonna we're gonna take everything from you. It's no, I like, know, I know what you mean. It's just like a little less, man. Like if if Jeff Bezos makes half of what he made, if he made forty five billion dollars and the other forty-five billion dollars got spread across his company so people could not piss in bottles and people could have proper wages and people could live normally, like. Is that fair? I think so, man. I think it's fair. Jeff Bezos doesn't think it's fair. No, he doesn't. (laughs)
0: Well, there's also people like Elon Musk, too, where it seems like he is somewhat moral about what he's doing, and he's trying to better humanity. Yeah. And send us to Mars and do all this crazy shit. And I I find that to be inspiring. Like, someone like Elon, it's like I could almost look the other way a little bit on because – what he's doing is going to be greater impacting the, the human sh- species for
1: generations to come. Well, and hopefully that's a more of a trend that we see of, of people with uh, Bill Gates is another perfect example of Bill Gates is like trying to end people not having clean drinking water where it's like he everyone should be able to have clean drinking water everyone should have food eat. he's trying to be like the front runner and stopping the carbon footprint and changing like the meat industry so it doesn't have such an impact on the environment like the there are there are, there is there is hope and like the i'm very much an optimist i mean your podcast called the Poptimist, so I would yeah yeah you're an optimist as well yeah um and the, when i look Things are getting better. Even when we look at like the Black Lives Matter protests, there's horrible relations between Black people a- and the police in America and through absolutely, the world. like Canada. We're not even close as bad. There's definitely issues there. And then, and we, if we're gonna keep looking at different things, like I'll, I'll I'm getting all over the place now. But no, like, no, it's fine. But you look at the Black Lives Matter protests. You you have so many people that came out. To support so many people who were the showing that the the relationships between uh, races has changed because if you even go back and you watch the march on Selma, you when the march on Selma is happening, you have lineups of racist people laughing and cheering as people are getting getting attacked by the police and sprayed with hoses. Yeah, that's an, and the that is a horrible sight. But seeing that there is actually progress, that things are actually getting better, that there is actually support and that our communities and and relationships are improving. And they're not perfect. And we cannot say that they are perfect, but that uh, there is still hope that things will move in this positive direction. And hopefully we get to a place where financially people can have a livable wage no matter where they work.
0: Well, not only just a livable wage, but I also think, an equal shot at whatever their, their dream is. Yeah. No matter how big or how small. And you have to, you have to scale it in degrees for whatever it is you want to do. I mean, you and I, we're doing something that's kind of like floofy out there. We're like, we want to be artists. We want to be creative. We don't want to have jobs. We want to sleep in all this shit. Yeah. But if someone wants to, I don't know, own their own business, just start a restaurant or whatever. It's like, They shouldn't be held back to the point with bankers, with any of that shit that it's going to limit them. Because I mean, like we were kind of talking about money being the main problem. It's like these banks are what run our society and what run the world.
1: And they shouldn't have to worry about like a massive company like Amazon selling their products at a loss to purposely put you out of business to like be like, well, we can afford to sell at a loss. And so we will. Until everyone goes out of business and then we can raise our prices like that's like it's the that's not fair like it's I'm you had Jeff Bezos had a $200,000 loan from his. Father to start. Yes. uh, Amazon. The guy who owns uh, like Dior. I can't remember what his name is. It's L M V C or something. It's this French dude, and his family owns like Dior and Sephora and Louis Vuitton and all these different fashion and like makeup and jewelry brands. He had a twenty million dollar loan from his dad to buy Dior in the eighties. Like, there's a clear advantage that these people have, and they're going to keep leveraging this advantage because there's nothing stopping them. And if you are a small business owner and you're like, I want to start. A, a clothing line you shouldn't have to worry about these people putting their boot on your neck and crushing you unless you uh abide by their rules or just die in the process the evil empire yeah we shouldn't have to worry about the evil empire there needs to be some sort of balance or else they're just going to have civil unrest and everyone's going to lose it and then we will have bloodshed in the streets
0: <laughs> we were very very fucking close to it yeah did you see the mandalorian Oh yeah, yeah. I love the Mandalorian. Okay. So I'm guessing you saw the, the Bill Burr episodes. Uh, I was a big fan of his second episode yeah. that he did in the second season, just because when they were kind of going through to this empire base, he's like empire resistance. It doesn't matter to these people. It's all the same. It's someone who's on
1: top of them, telling them what to do yeah. and how exactly. to live. Exactly. And that's what the situation is. When we go back to where everything we're talking about before it, all this it's all comes back down to an economic divide. That's what this is. It's people or some people are above it and some people are below it. And the people who are above it want to keep people below it because it keeps control. And if you can keep the people below it against each other and fighting amongst each other, then it's a lot easier to keep them below the line. Oh, yeah.
0: So I guess what I've taken from this conversation today is hate Jeff Bezos, but still love the Amazon one click.
1: (laughs) I'm not, I'm not against innovation. I'm not against what, like, obviously these were all of us use these services. They've made our lives easier and more convenient. It's nothing against the, the changing of markets. It's that there's all of this is coming at the expense of of other people being able to just live. And so other people can have uh, levels of wealth that they could never do anything with in their wildest dreams, or they're buying things that like, I'm going to buy like a, a a super yacht that's bigger than an apartment building. And I'll use it four times. And it's like, what, it, it it's not like, a, and other, someone else can't even afford a home. A home, and then when we're looking at the grand scheme of things, this chasing of of lifestyle is just killing our planet. There's a these these super rich, these super tankers, this massive consumption. It, 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 if we keep living like this, we might end up with uh, all of us dead, uh, running around with Mad Max or sawed off shotguns in the desert. You know, I
0: I honestly think that might be my fantasy a little bit though <laughs> <laughs> i don't want it to happen but if it does happen i'm not going to be mad
1: yeah i know it's like hey man you, at least it's we're we're all in an equal playing field now yes exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah. so t- uh, tell
0: me a little bit about uh your stand-up comedy album you said you released it last year
1: Yeah, so I had an album come out last year, October. I was super lucky. I just recorded it right before COVID kicked off. It was like February. I recorded it. Oh, fuck, yeah. It was just right on time. Uh, And then got everything together. It's called Tales from My Butthole um and it's kind of been a good collage of like my first few years of stand-up and everything I've been able to put together it's upsetting that COVID did happen because now I can't work on new material in the same way I'm excited for the summer to come around so I can start crafting new stuff um uh, but I, I really enjoy it I really like what I was able to put together with that and, and, I, and I'm proud of it and it's a good uh, so like I'm happy with how good it is because i'm like oh i know i can do so much better with what oh, yeah. this thing is yeah so you're going to be touring canada this summer are things
0: opening back up there
1: yeah so i think the landscape what it's going to be is similar to what we had last year where there was a lot of patio a lot of outdoor stuff so we're doing um, we're putting our tour together now we're most likely going to start in ontario then just hit the road and head east uh and go through like new brunswick nova scotia and all that kind of stuff um, we don't have all our dates and everything set yet, but probably going to be taking off mid-May, mid-May, and then go for as long as we can. I tour with a couple other comedians, uh, Jacob Balshin and Andrew Packer. And we do the JNT comedy tour. We've done it. Uh, we did a whole West coast tour in 2018 and, uh, an East coast tour in, uh, 2019. And now we're just back at it again. Where can people find you at? Uh, I'm at Chater Rain on everything. Twitter, uh, Instagram, uh, TikTok, all the platforms. And they should. No, and they should fucking follow me. Or follow me, you fucking idiots. That's there we I go. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's what I'm at on all platforms. I'm going to have a, I'm uh, I'm I'm streaming on Twitch right now. Uh, my uh, Twitch channel is Little Dinky News. Uh, there's no news. We just play video games <laughs> and talk shit. It's, uh, me and, uh, another comic Cameron Phoenix. Um, and I'm going to have a podcast coming out called the black Jew, uh, with, uh, it's my, me and one of the guys I tour with Jacob Balsh and he's Jewish. I'm black. So we called it the black Jew.
0: Fantastic. Hey man. Well, thank you so much for doing this today.
1: I do. Thank you for having me on. I had a great time. Of course.
0: This podcast is produced to you by Taylor Miller.